0: Subjects relating to John Brown, one of the most interesting questions to me as a biographer does not pertain to allegations of terrorism or violence, you know, the kind of stuff that's usually discussed by people who know very little about Brown but have decided and stubborn opinions about him. Rather, one of the most interesting things to me is Brown's personal interrelations with black people as one typically credited with being in advance of his time regarding so-called race relations. Although I wrote about this with far more detail in my 2002 biography of Brown elevating his forward-looking views on race and his camaraderie and alliance with black people in particular, it has been addressed by black writers too, especially W.E.B. Du Bois in the early 20th century and by the masterful scholar Benjamin Quarles in the 1970s. And although my biography preceded the eminent biography by David S. Reynolds, John Brown abolitionist, the Reynolds biography received deserved acclaim. And his thesis, among other things, is that Brown seeded the civil rights movement and that he was well in advance of whites in regard to race. So there's nothing new here, I suppose. Although I think we tend to portray this question like a one-way street. That is, what Brown did for race relations, or what Brown did in terms of the black community. Now, in contrast, it was the black authors, Du Bois and Quarles, who came closest to addressing the two-way street version. That is, not only how Brown felt about blacks, but how did blacks respond to John Brown? What did they think of him, really think of him? Furthermore, how did black people impact John Brown? Surely they were more than objects of his sympathy, and it was more than their suffering that drove him forward. Now, I don't presume to be able to answer these questions with absolute historical fullness, but perhaps in this episode, we can begin a discussion that is not only important in order to gain a deeper sense of John Brown's life, but also which may be instructive for the ongoing question of being a so-called white ally. From New York City. This is Louis A. DeCaro, Jr., and this is John Brown Today. I should probably start with a bit of transparency on this subject since it's been a point of interest for me since I was a young seminary graduate in the early 1980s the theme of what was then called racial reconciliation in my circles, something that I increasingly found quite gripping in personal and academic terms. When I moved to New York City at the time, I quite intentionally sought out fellowship with black people, mostly in the church, but not exclusively so, although the church was perhaps the best means of doing, quote, racial reconciliation, end quote. I also immersed myself in black history, sought out cultural and historical events, and even became a bit caught up in the anti-apartheid movement at the time. Indeed, I became so absorbed that eventually this derailed my Ph.D. studies in Renaissance Italian church history, which I abandoned after going as far as the Ph.D. seminar, which was the last course in that program. When I started a new Ph.D. program at NYU once again, a year later... It was with the zealous intention of doing a religious life of Malcolm X. Now, the rest is history, I suppose, but in some diminutive sense. Although, I can at least assert that without Malcolm X, there might not have been a John Brown scholarly route for me as a biographer. Now, I hope this is not too much information. However, I just wanted to give my listeners some sense of why the question before us matters to me, and why, looking back over three decades, I think it's more nuanced than we as biographers may let on. The truth is that when whites enter black circles of association, whether religious or political or cultural, the dynamics are typically complex. Of course, the overall philosophy and mood of a given association will determine how that complexity is played out, just as will the approach and personality of the white joiner, if you will. As the story of the Civil Rights Movement shows us, whites might join integrated groups, but in time, controversies arose over whether whites should be permitted to join black organizations, especially after the rise of the Black Power Movement in the early 1970s. In brief, the African American experience of interacting with whites in their own movements and organizations has always been one beset by difficulties, especially because there is a typical tendency on the part of whites to push into roles of power and control. This was true of Frederick Douglass's experience within the predominantly white anti-slavery movement in the 1830s and 40s and it was likewise true of W. B. Du Bois's experience working with white liberals in the NAACP in the early 20th century, and so forth. With few exceptions, when whites have joined black circles, time and energy often have had to be spent in placating those white persons' sense of value to the group, or to assure that their comfort level is not challenged too much, something that's never done for blacks who work or play or worship or within majority white circles and groups. In white organizations, blacks are expected to fall in line and follow. In black groups, whites too often expect to have their inclinations and assumptions standardized and may get upset when that doesn't happen. Many times, too, whites involving themselves in black circles can be just plain overbearing, even when they think they're being sincere and helpful. Now, I like to think that such a tendency is largely not malicious, yet often it typifies those whose liberalism is genuine but immature and even lacking in wisdom and experience. Certainly, if you're white and you want to hang out in black circles, you'd better understand that many times, for reasons of expediency if not survival, blacks have had to learn how to tolerate us, if you will, when we come to save the day, so to speak. If you're white and you don't believe me, then just ask your black friends. If they don't want to admit it, then they're either foreigners without sufficient cultural immersion, or they're afraid of sounding too, quote, radical, end quote. Of course, the great political dynamic within the black struggle is defined in the contrast between black nationalism and integrationism, something that was quite real long before the civil rights era of the 20th century. In John Brown's time, the tensions between the black nationalist and the integrationist were already well underway, even if the modern terminology was absent. Of course, the abolitionist movement was integrated, but it was largely led by whites, and these whites could become quite manipulative of black allies, even if they were brave enough to assert black equality. Consider the fact that Frederick Douglass was a kind of son to the white abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison early in his rising career. But when Douglass stretched his considerable wings to fly on his own, Garrison and others got uptight and even resentful, especially when it came to Douglass publishing his own newspaper. To be sure, the mighty Douglas himself was an integrationist, and he somewhat represents that movement as a forerunner of Martin Luther King Jr., both in his political posture and in his private interactions, too. Douglas's long and famous career suggests the integrationist arc in Black history, in contrast to someone like the great Martin Delaney, another of Brown's associates, whose story indicates a Black nationalist arc that culminates with the eminent Marcus Garvey, in the early 20th century. parenthetically, I should add, if I may dare, black nationalism in its original sense was inherently pan-African, as the phrase goes, and there was nothing provincial about the black nationalism of African-American leaders in John Brown's time. In the 20th century, W. E. B. Du Bois somewhat artificially contrived a distinction between black nationalism and pan-Africanism especially since he was so unsparing and harsh in his treatment of Marcus Garvey. But no such difference originally existed. Black nationalism's forebears in the 19th century, from David Walker to Martin Delaney and Henry Highland Garnett, were always black internationalists. And parenthetically further, the only black nationalist leader who really failed in this regard was the considerably less admirable so-called Muslim Elijah Muhammad, who actually was quite provincial and even bigoted against blacks from the Caribbean and continental Africa, something that Malcolm X himself stated after he was ejected from the Nation of Islam in 1964. Malcolm, who was a Garveyite son, almost single-handedly injected Africanity into the Nation of Islam in the late 1950s and early 60s, and sought a larger confraternity with blacks and non-whites worldwide. But again, black nationalists of an earlier time were internationalists. In fact, if one testimony is correct, it's interesting that Brown himself paid for a printing of David Walker's 1829 Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World, as well as a copy of the radical speech of his friend, the Reverend Henry Highland Garnett. John Brown liked black nationalists. It might be argued that he was something of a black nationalist himself, although I wouldn't push that category too far in his biography. Let's just say that, for a pale face, John Brown was unusually influenced by and admiring of the ethos of black power long before it became a mantra of the 20th century struggle for racial justice. second work on the abolitionist, entitled John Brown, The Cost of Freedom, 2007, I hinted at the underside of Brown's now recognized involvement in the black community when I observed that every 19th century black narrative about Brown is salutary, although most of them were written in retrospective appreciation for his self-sacrifice on their behalf. However, the actual feelings of black activists toward John Brown in the 1840s and 50s probably more complex to discuss. My own estimation is that while most of the personal attitudes among black people toward Brown bespoke respect, friendship, and perhaps even admiration, there were possibly also undercurrents that reflected personal uncertainty, cynicism, and even criticism, although most of this personal underside of history will never be known. The trouble, of course, too, is that interracial dynamics can be freighted with so many other human factors. Personal impressions, traits, likes and dislikes, ambitions, and ideological inclinations, even sexual attractions, and other human circumstances that might be overlooked when writing about interracial alliances in politics and activism down through history. The story of Brown's relationship with Frederick Douglass is perhaps the ripest for the picking in this regard. Brown was almost 20 years Douglass's senior, and their friendship spanned over a decade. My own sense is that when Douglass met Brown in the later 1840s, he was deeply impressed by him, maybe even a bit awestruck, and I think he gave Brown more of a green light along the avenue of his expressions at the time, whereas by the later 1850s, that is a decade later, I think Douglas was showing Brown the yellow light, and by October 1859, he actually showed a red light. indeed, by that late date, at the time of the Harper's Ferry raid, their friendship was really challenged. Afterward, when Brown was waiting to die in Virginia, he even intimated his disappointment in Douglas for not having promoted his cause, especially in his refusal to enlist black men. For Douglas's part. He had become quite famous by 1859, and he wasn't going to throw himself headfirst into Brown's plan. And although he doesn't talk about it in his autobiography, he and Brown clashed once or twice in 1859 because Douglas didn't like the idea of seizing the Harper's Ferry Armory. In retrospect, Douglas conflated the story of these conflicts into one meeting when he wrote his third autobiography. And even pretended he hadn't heard about Brown's intention to seize the armory until August 1859. But this is just not borne out by the record. Actually, Douglas knew about Brown's intentions as early as March 1859, and the two men even had an argument in Detroit at the time over this very issue. While Brown and Douglas repaired their friendship afterward, all Douglas ever did was to bring Shields Green down to meet Brown that following August in a famous meeting at the quarry in Chambersburg. And if you read between the lines of his third autobiography, you will sense that Douglas suggests he was even trying to dissuade Green from joining Brown during that meeting. And I'm not speculating here. Years later, Douglass stated clearly that he did everything he could do to prevent Brown from carrying out his plan but Douglas really did more to undermine black enlistment in Brown's campaign than he admits in his famous autobiography. In October 1859, their last meeting, which actually took place in Philadelphia, Douglas completely backed away from Brown's efforts and would not even support Brown after a notable request was made for him to do so by blacks from Philadelphia. Of course, this is the strategic part of the story, and there are pros and cons as to Douglas's decision, so I'm not criticizing him for it, only observing that such a conflict really did take place, even though he sanitized it for the record, probably because it was too painful in retrospect. Now, I'm actually more interested in reflecting upon how the story of these two allies was really shaped, particularly how Douglass and other black leaders may have spoken about Brown when he wasn't around. Douglas does say in his autobiography that when he met John Brown in the 1840s, he had, quote, made a deep impression upon my mind and heart, end quote, and that his name had been mentioned by black leaders like Henry Highland Garnett and Jermaine Logan, quote, in speaking of him, their voices would drop to a whisper, end quote. Douglas wrote further, and what they said of him made me very eager to see and to know him, end quote. It was such quiet, low-spoken references to John Brown by black men, spoken within a circle of black confidence, that led to their first meeting then in 1847, and the rest of their shared story unfolded afterward. It's important to observe that although Brown interacted with blacks from the 1820s until well into the 1840s, most of these early associations were largely carried out in the rural and agrarian context. Apparently, it was not until he went to live in Springfield, Massachusetts in 1846 that Brown became acquainted with notable black leaders. To be sure, he was familiar with many individual black people in his earlier life, especially in working on the Underground Railroad. However, it's not possible to gauge just how much Brown was involved in the Underground Railroad prior to the 1840s and 50s. Although he came from a strongly anti slavery family and subculture in the Western Reserve of Northeastern Ohio, Brown probably had slight but steady contact with blacks in Ohio and in northwestern Pennsylvania from the 1820s, again until about the early 1840s. Ruth Brown Thompson. Brown's eldest daughter, remembered some interaction between her father and a black man in Pennsylvania. In Ohio, Brown hosted a young so-called mixed-race ministerial student attending the Western Reserve College in Hudson. He even got white Christians upset in an Ohio congregational church for giving the Brown family church pew to black Christian attendees who would otherwise have been left to stand in the back of the church. As a wool expert traveling the tri-state area of western Pennsylvania, eastern Ohio, and western Virginia in the mid-1840s, Brown also knew and visited black farmers and interacted with them as well as white farmers. Such stories are present in the record, and they undoubtedly hint that if black people were around John Brown anywhere, he made sure to get to know them and even befriend them. However, it was not until he got to Massachusetts and lived in Springfield that he experienced a thriving eastern town with black city dwellers, both free people and formerly enslaved people. Springfield was John Brown's urban experience, as I call it, where he lived from 1846 to 1849 while pursuing a wool commission operation in that city. Black Springfield was Brown's entry or gateway into Black alliances and networks. He would later connect with Black leaders in other cities like Philadelphia, Cleveland, Detroit, and Chicago. But Springfield was the place where he evolved as a kind of Black nationalist, I believe, because of his interactions with an active Black urban community, even if it was not as large as might be found in cities like Philadelphia. In Springfield, Brown not only met and huddled with black leaders, but he regularly attended an African-American church, he hired black employees, and comfortably moved in and out of black neighborhoods in an era when even so-called anti-slavery Republicans might duck and run through black neighborhoods for fear of being seen by other whites. Perhaps the most important black man that Brown got to know in Springfield was Thomas Thomas later a restaurateur who lived for a time also in Springfield, Illinois, and likewise came to know Abraham Lincoln. But John Brown and Thomas Thomas in Springfield, Massachusetts, became quite close. Brown hired Thomas for the Wool Commission house, but found in him an ally and confidant regarding his visions for undermining slavery. After all, Brown was never just about making money, but in the late 1840s, as the crisis over the emboldened slave power began to mount in the country, he became more of a political businessman than ever before. Bits and pieces of their friendship survive in local annals. Once, Brown and Thomas went to see a play based on the famous new book at the time, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and Thomas must have admired Brown a great deal. At another time, he gave Brown a gentleman's walking stick as a gift an item which interestingly turned up in Harlem in the 1920s, although I have no idea of what became of it afterward. Brown remained in Springfield until the spring of 1849, when he moved his family up to Essex County, New York, in the Adirondacks. He did so in order to support a fledgling black settlement popularly known as Timbuktu. Now, Brown was an agrarian, a farmer, a specialist in livestock, Not really an urban guy anyway. As a matter of fact, and I say this parenthetically, he disliked my town, New York City, quite a bit, although he visited New York City somewhat frequently in his life. And he even just about laid an egg when John Brown Jr. moved here for a time to become an assistant phrenologist in Manhattan in the early 1850s. When John Jr. finally got tired of that gig and left New York City, you can almost hear the old man's sigh of relief in one of his letters. Personally, as a proud New York City resident, that makes me a little sad. I wish Brown had taken to Manhattan, but his visits here were always a necessity and never, I'm sure, a pleasure. At any rate, all the black settlers in Timbuktu were free people from New York State, not ex-slaves, so-called. They were urbanites with no agrarian training. They had received land grants from the wealthy abolitionist Garrett Smith, and were encouraged by certain black leaders like Willis Augustus Hodges, who will be mentioned later, and by Brown too, to leave the troublesome city and find their future in farming and agrarian life. John Brown actually expressed his heartfelt desire to move there, consequently, and in his words, to become a kind of father to the black urban settlers. In fact, that's what he did, training black men in the wilderness, helping their families when he could, and acting as a kind of mentor. Now, whether or not he was paternalistic in doing this, I suppose that's a question. Although there's no sense that the black settlers resented his presence and guidance, if anything, they seemed concerned to have him there when he was absent. With the passing of the Fugitive Slave Law in the fall of 1850, Brown returned to Springfield and found the black community there in an uproar, and for good reason. The revitalized Fugitive Slave Law was worse than the older version of 1793. The 1850 law empowered slave hunters and rewarded judges who sent captured blacks into slavery. The law prevented blacks from speaking for themselves in court and generally empowered slaveholders and their agents to invade northern towns and cities to seize blacks, even conspiring and collaborating with cops and detectives to kidnap and send their victims down south in chains, a process referred to as rendition. Seeing that black anxieties were vivid, Brown bought a box of knives and handed them out at the door of the Springfield Church to his black Christian brothers and sisters. One of those knives, by the way, is on display in the museum at Osawatomie, Kansas, in case you're interested. Then he organized a self-defense group, which he called the United States League of Gileadites, which was a biblical reference, not uncommon for Brown to make. Which enlisted men and women and gave them strategies to elude, fight, and, if necessary, even kill slave hunters when they ventured into town. Brown drafted a constitution for the organization, helped them enlist officers, and also advised them to impose themselves on the so called good whites in town if they needed backup. And if they had a tough slave hunter in hand, Brown wrote, they might even need to use a noose. Now, I'm not exaggerating too much here, but this was a kind of prototype of the Black Panthers because it was an organization that was designed to protect black people from racist, quote, law enforcement, end quote. Interesting, then, this was a black self-defense organization that was birthed by a peculiar white ally who actually believed and argued out loud that blacks were no different from whites and, if pushed to do so, would even fight for their freedom. More dramatic yet, Brown wanted to arm black men and women, something that even President Lincoln was hesitant to do early in the Civil War, let alone in 1850. In fact, white society in general dreaded any notion of arming black people, but not John Brown. He felt that blacks had a natural and divine right to take up weapons in their defense, and the Gileadites was the first political expression of the influence of black nationalists upon John Brown. Of course, John Brown went off to Kansas in eighteen fifty five, and although the conflict there was quote about unquote, black people, the real politic of the Kansas conflict was about whites fighting whites over power. That's an honest assessment even though a small number of white free state people like John Brown and his family were unapologetic abolitionists who argued for black equality and caught some hell for it. But mostly so-called bleeding Kansas was about whites arguing with whites about who would have power in a new state. Perhaps that's why militant John Brown did not stay in the Kansas Territory once he and others had helped the Free State side to overcome their passivity and fight fire with fire as was necessary at the time. So note, John Brown had already become militant in a black urban context based on camaraderie and alliance with black people because that was the primary fight in 1850. However, he never apparently had to fight until five years later in Kansas when he picked up a sword to save his own family from being burned out and killed by pro-slavery terrorists. Notwithstanding the conflict in Kansas, however, John Brown wanted to come back east because it was slavery that he wanted to overthrow and it was black people that he wanted to arm in that campaign. After Kansas then, Brown revisited the and expanded connections with abolitionists and became somewhat famous, even something of a celebrity in the North. But by 1858, he was increasingly moving in and out of Black communities across the East with more frequency, hobnobbing with Black businessmen, abolitionist activists, and regular folks, too. Of course, it was at this time that Brown met Harriet Tubman, and even scoured expatriate Black communities, across Canada West, what we know today as Ontario, looking for Black recruits. In May 1858, he culminated this campaign to recruit Blacks by holding a, quote, quiet convention, end quote, in Chatham, Ontario, not far from the border at Detroit, Michigan. There he drafted a constitution for his guerrilla state, seeking out Martin Delaney and other Blacks, then residing in Canada. Of course, in the end, almost none of Brown's expatriate Canadian associates supported him. Osborne Anderson, a black Pennsylvania-born printer and journalist from Chatham, joined Brown at Harper's Ferry and thankfully escaped, too. Anderson would go on to write admirably of Brown in 1860, but he would also gently chide Brown for his failure to move with greater expedience at Harper's Ferry in regard to gathering enslaved people, and that they had indeed responded more positively to Brown than whites acknowledged, a point that Anderson's record still challenges in the writing of contemporary white historians who claim Brown failed completely to attract local blacks, something that's simply not the case. At any rate, had Brown moved with greater haste and worried less about his hostages, Anderson wrote, things would have turned out differently at Harper's Ferry.